All right. Well, last time uh, we began our look at Elihu, uh, the young, proud, and up-and-comer. Now, to set the scene again, Job's three friends had already given up hope to change Job. As, as the text says, these three men ceased to answer him because he was righteous in his own eyes. Job obviously wasn't going to heed their wisdom, so they no longer were going to cast their pearls before the swine, right? But then suddenly a young man whose presence is unknown until now will now stand up and speak. The beginning of chapter 32 gives us a brief introduction to Elihu. It says, Then Elihu, the son of Barakel, the Buzite of the family of Ram, burned with anger. He burned with anger at Job because he justified himself rather than God. Now, Elihu's name means, he is my God. Now, this name is fitting in, that, in the way that it characterizes his attitude during his speeches. Elihu's major premise to Job is that God is righteous and holy, and that Job is unjustified in, un, in trying to justify himself before God. Now, Elihu feels like he has to take on the role of God's defender, because he is uh, Yahweh is his God. But Elihu's anger was not only directed to Job, but as the text says, also to Job's three friends, because they found no answer, although they had declared uh, Job to be in the wrong. So Job was going to set the record straight himself that these old men couldn't do what he was, right? But if Elihu considered himself such a defender of God, why didn't he speak up earlier? Well, he explains, or as the text explains. Elihu had waited to speak to Job because they were older than he. And when Elihu saw that there was no answer in the mouth of these three men, he burned with anger. Now, Elihu thought that being that he was younger than Job's three friends, it would be bad form to speak up before his elders had that chance. But Elihu was going to defer to their wisdom, and he wasn't, but he wasn't going to do so indefinitely. And he concluded that they were incompetent. He was tired of letting them speak and letting Job get the upper hand every time. Now, Elihu begins by acknowledging to Job that he is young in years, and you are aged, and therefore I was timid and afraid to declare my opinion to you. However, age doesn't necessarily mean that one is wise, as he will also then say, but it is in the spirit in man, the breath of the Almighty, that makes him understand. It is not the old who are wise, nor the aged, who understand what is right. Now, and this is true. As we know, foolishness knows no bounds nor age, right? But foolishness is especially egregious when the elderly act like the foolish youth, right? As the old saying goes, there is no fool like an old fool, right? <laughs> But, but what makes a person an old fool? It's their stubbornness, right? That refuses to be taught or admit wrongdoing. It's an elder that lacks humility. Now, as you age, you should be growing in it, in humility and wisdom, not decreasing in it. So an old fool is one who decreases in wisdom and humility. But Elihu is not humble, himself this young man, as he says this, he says, listen to me. Let me also declare my opinion. 
Obviously, Elihu had a lot to say because he continues, Behold, my belly is like wine that has no vent, like new wineskins ready to burst. I must speak that I might find relief. I must open my lips and answer. Now, what's interesting in his admission is that he thinks that having many words is the measure of wisdom. However, both Job and his friends thought that being verbose was not necessarily a good virtue, but a bad one. Do you remember what Bildad declared earlier on to Job as he accuses him? How long will you say these things and the words of your mouth be a great wind? How about Zophar? What he said, should a multitude of words go unanswered and a man full of talk be judged right? Eliphaz to Job as well. Should a wise man answer with windy knowledge and fill his belly with the east wind? And then finally, Job's declaration to finish it off. I have heard many things. Miserable comforters are you all. When shall windy words have an end? Or what provokes you that you answer? Exactly, exactly. And Elihu is too, and that's the point. No, the one thing that makes these old men, and they knew it was wordiness rather than being a mark of wisdom, is often a symptom of hubris and youthful arrogance. As James tells us, rather, rather than being quick to talk, he says, what should we do? Be quick to hear and then slow to speak. Slow to anger. Often much greater wisdom is expressed in fewer words, isn't it? This is often demonstrated when one has carefully weighted their words and thought about it carefully. And whether or not they should use certain words or say certain things. Because it might be either unhelpful or perhaps even harmful. But this is not the sense that we get from Elihu who likely heard the whole dialogue between Job and his three friends and perhaps was dying to jump in the whole time. You can almost see it. He was just kind of waiting for his opportunity. He wasn't carefully thinking what he should say, but probably knew what he wanted to say at the outset. He was just waiting for his opportunity. Now, after Elihu's self-justifying claims of just now speaking up, he begins in chapter a four-chapter address about how God is just and, and right and how Job is wrong. Now, what's important to know as we look at these speeches is that while Elihu will say things differently in a slightly different way, he is not presenting a different theology from his friends. Therefore, at the end, we will see, really, he will not advance the argument any further than the three friends have. In chapter 33, Elihu prefaces his first point by trying to appear humble and just like Job. As he says, I am uh, toward God as you are. I too was pinched off from a piece of clay. Behold, no fear of me need terrify you. My pressure will not be heavy upon you. So he's saying, no, no need to worry, Job. I'm just an average Job. He's trying to appear relatable, even though he has just made himself to be one of great wisdom and knowledge. You can see the problem. But he's starting off the wrong foot, and he's feigning humility, right? Now, Elihu takes somewhat a different or somewhat similar approach to the three friends as he begins by trying to quote Job. As he says, Surely you have spoken in my ears, and I have heard the sound of your words. 
I am pure without transgression. I am clean and there is no iniquity in me. Behold, he finds occasions against me. He counts me as his enemy. Behold, in this you are not right. I will answer you, for God is greater than man. Why do you contend against him, saying he will answer none of man's words? For God speaks in one way and in two, though man does not perceive it. Here, Elihu is trying to use his own words against Job to reveal his perceived Job's self-righteousness, right? However, again, in similar fashion to the other three friends, Elihu does, uh, commits a fatal mistake. He misquotes Job. While Job said he was upright, he had never said that he was pure or sinless, did he? But after misquoting Job, Elihu uh, says that it doesn't matter if you're sinless or not because God does as he wishes. So it's presumptuous of Job that God, uh, that he expects God to answer him. Yet Elihu says God still condescends to mankind as he says he speaks in one way or two. You know, the idea here is that uh, uh, men, uh, God speaks to men in various ways. He knows that people are different in their levels of intelligence and the ways that they understand things. In other words, he tries to communicate on their level. But alas, this doesn't mean that men will understand, for God's wisdom is far beyond ours. Now here we can see that Elihu's understanding of God's communication with men is right on one level, but it misses the mark on another. It's true that God condescends. Obviously, if he didn't condescend, we wouldn't know anything, would we, about him? He has to condescend to us. But here's the point. If God wants to make you understand, he will make it so. There will be no mistaking of what he is saying. So when things escape men, that means that it's because God wants them to remain in darkness, doesn't it? The disciples, if you recall, asked Jesus why he spoke in parables, and what did he reply to them? He says, because seeing they do not see, and hearing they do not hear, nor they understand. Or, Paul also declares in 2 Thessalonians, of the wicked, deception for those who are perishing because they refuse to love the truth and so be saved. Therefore, God sends them a strong delusion, so they may not believe what is false in order that they may be condemned who did not believe the truth but had pleasure and unrighteousness. Obviously, if God does not deem to save you and to bring himself, uh, bring you to himself, he wants to remain for you to remain in darkness. That is, that is his plan. Now, the point being is that men, when they don't understand what God is saying, it's for a reason. So they will continue in that darkness. Now, as we discussed last time, this is a hard doctrine for a lot of people to accept. Right? Why? Because instead, what do they want to do? They want to justify God's ways to other men, like Elihu does here. That is, if people don't understand, it's not that if God hasn't tried, but rather you're either too stupid or stubborn to get it. Right? No, that's not what the scripture says at all, is it? No. No, according to scripture, if God grants you to ears to hear, you will hear. Or, in Jesus' words, as he says to the disciples, to you it has been given to know the secrets of the kingdom of heaven, but to them it has not been given. 
So again, faith is a gift of God, is it not? Including our understanding, which allowed, which is, uh, it was given to us by that faith, right? But then in the rest of chapter 33, Elihu will argue from this premise of God trying to teach you through suffering, as he says to Job. Behold, God does all these things twice, three times with a man to bring back his soul from the pit that he may be lightened with the light of life. Pay attention, O Job. Listen to me. Be silent, and I will speak. Now, while it's true that God does teach us through suffering, it's not that finally uh, what God's instruction uh, will finally get through our thick heads, is a lie who's confidently saying here, but rather through his suffering, the old nature is purged from us, right? It's an internal heart teaching as opposed to a purely intellectual one. While it's true our intellect is involved in the faith process, it can't be simply an intellectual change. But what must change? Our hearts must change. And who grants that change? It's God, right? He works that through us through the Holy Spirit. But that's what Elihu is missing. Now, as we continue this week through Elihu's speeches, he begins to defend God's justice. But again does so with a tone of self-righteous arrogance, as he continues. He says, Hear my words, you wise men, and give ear to me. You who know, for the ear tests words as the palate tastes food. Let us choose what is right. Let us know among ourselves what is good. So Elihu here is challenging the old men, showing them that they should have been the ones speaking all along. Uh, uh, that he, he should have been the one speaking all along, for he has the answers here, right? And he says, we'll te- test this out, what I'm saying, and it'll prove to be true, right? Then Elihu, again, once again, uh, once again quotes Job and attempts to correct his faulty understanding. He says, For he has said, It profits a man nothing that he should take delight in God. Therefore, hear me, you men of understanding, Far be it from God that he should do wickedness, and from the Almighty that he should do wrong. For according to the work of a man he will repay him, and according to his ways he will make it befall him. So he's trying here to correct Job's assertions, past assertions, that calamity comes both upon the wicked and the righteous. But Elihu will not hear of it. He emphatically states here that God works in a purely retributive way. In other words, what men reap, they will sow no matter what. Again, this argument is nothing new. As we have heard, all three friends basically say the same thing. He's just hoping that the way he says it will get through to Job. And he's confident in that, that the way he's going to say it's going to get through to Job. Now, I can imagine... Think about Job for a minute here as he's listening to all this. Even though he's silent, perhaps you can imagine him rolling his eyes at the young man, thinking to himself, ah, this is nothing different. Can he, will he just get over with it? You know, let's get on with it, be done with it. But here's the problem. Elihu had not been listening, had he? Otherwise, he would have heard Job's responses to his friends about this very issue, right? 
He would have been able to, uh, he would have had to deal with what Job's rebuttals were. But he obviously wasn't listening. He wanted just to say his piece. He was engaging in selective listening, right? We all do this. We selectively listen to what someone says, and then we twist it for our own purposes often, right? That's what Elihu's doing here. Now, he's been, if he'd been truly listening, he'd been forced to address this. But instead, Elihu begins to openly condemn Job and the like and the others, and, and, and he will continue his jabs at Job. But now, the subtlety is going to be dropped. And he's just like the other friends, he will, as he's getting frustrated, seeing that Job is perhaps not responding the way that he wants, he's going to resort to blatant attacks on his character, just like the three friends. Would that Job were tried to the end because he answers like wicked men, for he adds rebellion to his sin. He claps his hands among us and multiplies his words against God. Job doesn't seem to get that he's digging his own grave here, does he? That he's just piling on God's wrath upon himself by insisting that he has a hearing from the Almighty. Elihu thinks to himself, will he learn? I doubt it. I doubt it. But then, Elihu is going to continue. He's obviously holding out hope that what he says is going to get through Job's head. Then through chapter 35, Elihu then uses this as an opportunity to just bash Job even further. He said, maybe this will work. Do you think this to be just? Do you say it is my right before God? I will answer you and your friends with you. Look at the heavens and see and behold the clouds which are higher than you. They cry out, but he does not answer because of the pride of evil men. Surely God does not hear an empty cry, nor does the Almighty regard it. Now, Elihu is trying to answer Job's cry for justice by first reminding him his place in creation, that God is vastly superior to him in every way. But again, Elihu is stating a truth here. Do you recall this from Isaiah? For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. As high as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts higher than your thoughts. Mm-hmm. And it's also true that God certainly does not hear the prayers of the wicked, right? As we learn from Proverbs, the Lord is far from the wicked, but he hears the prayers of the righteous. But the problem in both of these statements with Elihu is in his presumption. First, how does he presume? He presumes by uh, presuming that Job is being prideful and insolent by requesting vindication from God, right? Now, Job already knows that he is vastly inferior to God, right? <clears throat> Do you remember his prayer to God and helping him? He was afraid to bring his case before God because he knows that he's all-powerful and that he is just. And really, Job doesn't have much of a case. He has no chance in of himself. So he asked God to give him the strength to be able to bring his case before himself, right? So he's approaching the throne with great trepidation. Job knows that he is helpless before this almighty God. So it's not an arrogance that Job approaches God 
but in complete fear and awe. But second, Elihu presumes that Job is wicked and therefore is implying that perhaps this is the, why, the reason why God hasn't answered him. He says, Job, you're wicked. God's not going to waste his time with you, right? But Elihu is like the religious elite of Jesus' day. They were often uh, going to give blanket pr- uh, pronunciations of people's hearts. They were in the business of heart reading. Do you remember in John chapter 9, after Jesus healed the man born blind? Do you recall that story? Mm-hmm. Afterwards, the blind man was questioned by the religious leaders. <clears throat> now, the man called Jesus a prophet. But the Pharisees weren't really happy with that answer. It's not what they wanted to hear, was it? As they said to him, in almost an insulting way, like Elihu, God has spoken to Moses, but as for this man, we do not know where he comes from. But the healed man was not unfazed in his response. Do you recall what he says back to them? He says, why? This is an amazing thing. You do not know where he comes from. And yet, he opened my eyes. We know that God does not listen to sinners. But if anyone is a worshiper of God and does his will, God listens to him. Now, the former blind man denounced their self-righteousness and their assessment of Jesus by pointing out what Jesus did could only be done by someone who God was on their side, right? who God had empowered. They had wrongly assessed Jesus and called what was good evil, right? And what does Jesus say? That's the very definition of grieving the Holy Spirit, right? Likewise, Elihu is saying that he is right, right? And he's saying he's right that God does not hear the prayers of the wicked, but here's the problem. Elihu is putting himself in the role of God. He is heart reading, right? He claims to know what Job is thinking deep down inside. He's declaring with absolute certainty Job's heart. Now, obviously, there's not an exact correlation between Jesus and Job here. Obviously, Jesus was sinless, while Job was tamed with sin just like the rest of humankind. But the heart of Elihu is the same spirit of that of the Pharisees who with utmost confidence declared the thoughts and intentions of mankind. But if you think Elihu's attitude of self-righteousness will at least temper itself from here on out, you would be wrong. He's going to continue his berating of Job, even though it's going to be in somewhat a false sense of humility here. He says, bear with me a little, and I will show you, for I have yet something to say on God's behalf. I will get my knowledge from afar and ascribe righteousness to my maker. For truly my words are not false. One who is perfect in knowledge uh, knowledge is with you. Now the question you might be asking is this. Who is he talking about? Who is the one who is perfect in knowledge? Now scholars have debated as who Elihu is talking to here. The, The language is very vague. But really, there are only two possibilities. One, he's referring to himself. Or two, he's talking about God. Now, obviously, option one is far worse, as it makes him out as being a complete arrogant jerk who thinks he's perfect, right? (laughs) 
However, the other option is not that great either. Even if he means that God is the one who is perfect in knowledge, he's still claiming to be perfectly right because God has the knowledge and he is with him, right? God is on his side. But what's puzzling with Elihu is that beside being arrogant, on the one hand, he will also sprinkle in nuggets of wisdom. But then he'll make statements that are just flat out wrong. And then sometimes in one statement, he will have a nugget of wisdom mixed in with folly, as he declares. He does not withdraw his eyes from the righteous, but the kings on the throne, he sets them forever, and they are exalted. Now, on the one hand, it's true that God does not withdraw his eyes from the righteous. But then on the other hand, it doesn't mean necessarily this relates to blessings in this life, as Elihu is promoting here. In other words, the righteous are not often given elevated status in this life, are they? They're not treated like kings. God does not elevate them as kings in this life. Now, eventually we do know that we will be given elevated status, but in the new heavens and the new earth, not here. But again, Elihu is promoting a system, if you only do good, uh, if you do good, you will only get good, but if you do bad, you will only get bad. Right? And of course, as we stated before, and Job has already answered, that is not necessarily the truth. Life experience shows you that. There are often times that the righteous are snuffed out, what appears before their time. But then you have the George Burns of the world who live a hundred years old, cursing God at every moment. It doesn't seem to make sense. You can't seem to reconcile it in our minds. But yet, Elihu is promoting that same sort of thinking. Then in the last part of chapter 36, through the end of his speech, which ends in chapter 37, Elihu goes on a long-winded declaration of God's unmatched glory and majesty. As he says, Behold, God is exalted in his power, who is, like, uh, who is a teacher like him. Who has prescribed for him his way, or who can say, you have done uh, wrong? Now again, you can hear statements of truth in here. A similar type thing has been said in the book of Daniel, right? All the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing, and he does according to his will uh, among the host of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth, and none can uh, can stay his hand or say to him, what have you done? Being that we are no match for God, we cannot question God in any respect or for anything that he has decreed to take place. And Elihu acknowledges this, and he can see this to be true. But then Elihu will end on a long speech about God's majesty. As he says, at this also my heart trembles and leaps out of its place. Keep listening to the thunder of his voice and the rumbling that comes from his mouth. Under the whole heaven he lets it go and his lightning to the corners of the earth. He seals up the hand of every man that all men whom he made may know it. Then the beasts go into their lairs and remain in their dens. From its chamber comes the whirlwind and cold from the scattering wind. Now, Elihu's language is attempting to scare Job into repentance 
by declaring God's mastery and control over all creation. But then Elihu questions Job and whether or not he's thought about the implications of what this means, about this all-powerful God. As he says, Do you know how God lays his command upon them and causes the lightning of his cloud to shine? Do you know the balancings of the clouds, the wondrous works of him who is perfect in knowledge? Now, if these last two passages sound familiar, they should if you've read the book of Job before. Because why? This will be the same sort of language that God will use just a chapter later, right? As he will begin to question Job. Elihu is saying that uh, until Job can match God's ability to tame the seas and set all of creation in order, does he really have the right to question God? But here's the problem, is that Elihu has already damaged his credibility. While on the one hand he has declared true and wise sayings, he has also declared falsehoods that promote a self-righteous justification before God. Now, I find it fitting that Elihu closes his speech to Job in this way. As he says, Men fear him. He does not regard any who are wise in their own conceit. Now, as we will see, like Job's wife, who was a mouthpiece for Satan, Elihu will not be heard from again. Job's three friends will be addressed by God But guess what? Elihu is uh, eerily absent from God's address. It's almost as if God completely disregards his contribution because he was the conceited one. But now, as we will start looking at next week, God has waited long enough and he will finally set the record straight. Any comments or questions? Anything that we've, we've covered this evening? Elihu, you can see that he really has not advanced it any further. In fact, he's, he's really shown himself to be the most conceited of all, the most arrogant of all. He has a little bit of knowledge, but as, as the saying goes, that's what is referred to as being sophomoric, right? A little, uh, little knowledge is very dangerous, right? If it's not uh, uh, tamed by wisdom. And that's what we seeing here with Elihu, that he does not have that wisdom, right? So when in the chapter that is coming, mm-hmm. God speaks to Job, uh, are those around him that shared their thoughts with him mm-hmm. of knowledge, do they also hear the words of God? Yes, and in fact, that's the, the implication that you get from the text that um, God is silencing everyone. God, when God speaks, there is no one speaking. <laughs> no one else speaks, is able to speak. He is, uh, that's why, the, the, as we'll uh, look at the, towards the end, uh, the three friends are almost like shaking in their boots. They're, they're fearful uh, because they, they know, as God will proclaim to them, they have spoken wrongly about Job, and therefore they're going to be uh, very fearful about what is said. But Again, what's interesting here is that Elihu's not mentioned again. He's almost like Job's wife, remember? Mm-hmm. After Job's uh, wife makes her proclamation, she's not mentioned again. It's almost as if 
You know, she's not worth mentioning. And therefore, God in his mind thinks that, you know what, Elihu's not worth mentioning either because he's full of conceit and pride, right? Anyone else? David. It seems like to me that a little bit of, <clears throat> little bit of knowledge um, is the beginning of the end of great wisdom. Yes, yeah. Because obviously, he, while he claimed... Uh, to fear the Lord, as he uh, said at the end, at this also my heart trembles and leaps out of its place. But yet, that attitude of self-righteousness that you can earn, once you approach the holy God and you see him and encounter him, you realize there is not enough good works that you can do. You realize that all of your works are as filthy rags. And obviously, Elihu has not truly encountered God Otherwise, he would have a greater sense of humility, right? And that's, that's what Job does have. Uh, Job will be humbled further, but Job does have an, a, a measure of humility. But Elihu obviously doesn't. Otherwise, he would be speaking differently to Job than he is, right? Mm-hmm. Steve? Uh, toward earlier, um, you said some things that reminded me of this Proverb 1727, which I'm sure we've mm-hmm. been thinking of, but... Uh, 1727 through 28 whoever restrains his words has knowledge and he who has a cool spirit is a man of understanding even a fool who keeps silent is considered wise when he closes his lips he is deemed intelligent right that's exactly right that's exactly right and again sometimes it again going back to um, he, he thought that having many words was a, uh, a marker of wisdom right uh, but as the other, at least the other uh, four knew that that's not necessarily the case. You know, even the older men who are, are condemning Job know that being, you know, very windy, uh, very uh, verbose is not necessarily a good thing. It become, can become quite tiresome. But oftentimes that's the, uh, the burden of youth, isn't it? Uh, the burden of youth is they think they have a lot to say and that people should listen to what they have to say. Rather than being, as James said, being slow to hear. I mean, quick to hear, but slow to speak, right? We should, we should all take that. Proverbs 17, mm-hmm. 27. Yeah. I need that. Do you know why? I got three granddaughters. <laughs> Grandma shut your mouth and get in your room. Yeah. When I try to tell them something. Yeah. I'm going to give that script. <laughs> 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 yeah, I know that word. So that, that, again, that's the problem with Elihu is that he is he is full of hubris. He's full uh, full of arrogance, and um, and really up to this point, as the uh, human actors, so to speak, have um, uh, spoke all their parts. Uh, now God is going to give His peace. He has had enough. He has been he has been forbearant. This whole time, through 37 chapters, he has been quietly listening, mm-hmm. and he is going to uh, uh, make, set the record straight, finally. He is going to speak rightly about what his, his justice means, and not necessarily give Job the answer he wants. I think that's so important for us as we, uh, before we begin next week, that we understand that God and his dealing with us very often does not give us a why, does he? He doesn't give us a why. And we must be able to trust in his righteous proclamation. He has already given us enough. He has given us his word. The promises of God should be enough for the Christian. 
And oftentimes when we struggle with these things, we have to remind ourselves about the promises of God. And again, having a forward thinking approach as opposed to a present thinking approach. Uh, Again, a future uh, longing for the heavenly country, right, Lonnie? You know, it appears that Job and his friends are speaking about God from the circumstances Mm -hmm. that they're involved in instead of knowing the scripture or God speaks about our circumstances. You know, and we all make that same mistake. God, why are you doing this? Right. And we shouldn't do that. We shouldn't question God about whatever happens. Right. Right, and it's it's not not to say that we don't struggle uh, with things that God is doing, but if we do question God, it should be in a, a complete spirit of humility, and and really, it's not going to change what God is going to do. I think that's the important part when we pray and we ask God what He's doing. The end goal is for us to change. Right. Because he has determined the end from the beginning. And the end goal is, I mean, he's perfect. He, he can't change. But guess what? We need to change, right? We need to be sanctified and made more into his image, right? And that goes back to where John spoke in First uh, John 5, 14, where he says, we have this assurance mm-hmm. right now that if we ask God anything, in accordance to his will. That's right. He hears us right. Yeah, he does hear us. That doesn't yes. mean I'm going to get an answer to my prayer. That's right. Or but yes. If I'm saying your will be done, then I'm accepting whatever mm-hmm. his will is. That's right. That's right. That's right. Yeah, Steve? Yeah, you know, um, that devotional about Paul David Tripp, New, mm-hmm. morning, new morning Mercies that I've mentioned that we use, that's the the drum he beats over and over mm-hmm. on these daily devotionals is uh, if we come from a position of my will versus God's will and mm-hmm. we want relief from the crisis and struggles <laughs> when he's really using those very, that is the plan, like mm-hmm. that was this morning's devotional, is he said it's, it's not a failure on God's part to come to your rescue, that is his plan for you. Yes, to right. sanctify you in the image of Christ through these trials. And if our perspective is, isn't that, if it's not one of humility, then we start to doubt God's faithfulness. We start mm-hmm. to doubt God's goodness. Mm-hmm. We tend to run from Him mm-hmm. and not go to Him. And it's that perspective. We have to be kept in a humble perspective mm-hmm. that um, God's in control. Mm-hmm. I trust Him. I can trust His promises and who He is. Mm-hmm. And I have to remind myself, fight that old nature. Yes. Uh, that it's not my will here that needs to be appeased or accomplished. He's accomplishing his good will through these things. That's exactly right. You know, because the sanctification process is a difficult process. It shouldn't. We shouldn't expect the. That this is this is why the health wealth doctrine is so damaging to the true gospel. It is. A, it is damaging. It is damnable. I should just say damnable. Uh, and again, uh, you know, reading, uh, reading, thinking of Elihu, and then uh, Jesus talking about the Pharisees, and he goes and mentions to them, and the woe to the Pharisees, as he as he mentions in in Matthew, that they go out uh, outside and they make proselytes, but quickly they are making citizens of hell. 
<laughs> and because of, of, of what they're promoting. And it's the same thing. If you're trusting in your own works and your own righteousness, that is, the, that is a recipe for hell. It is a recipe for hell. You must be uh, safe from that. Yes, sir. Yeah, I was just um, listening, I think it was last week, to R.C. Spool. Uh, they were talking about the, the guy that changed. Uh, I think it was the guy that introduces R.C. has, has changed in the last week. Or mm. so. mm-hmm. And uh, he, they, they were just doing a review on some of his earlier sermons, and I think he had one called The Terror of Holiness. And he was mm-hmm. talking about how... <laughs> There was nobody more righteous than Isaiah in Isaiah's day. He was the most righteous man on earth. But when he was confronted with the presence of God, he actually pronounced an oracle of woe on himself. That's right. And he said that he was completely undone. He was. That is quite terrifying, actually, to think that even Isaiah had to just tremble in fear when Mm -hmm. he was was effectively, by all accounts, a very righteous man. Yes. Yeah. And and that kind of kind of gives a, a hint to that Elihu really his heart wasn't trembling was it as he as he had claimed because you are not going to be speaking in that kind of way if you've truly encountered God it is a terrible and awe inspiring encounter in which you are left undone I love that that quote that was put out this week on on our Facebook page. That once you encounter God, you are never the same. Amen. You are never the same. And, and it, it's both good and yet terrifying at the same time. Mm-hmm. It's, it's, it's a wonderful um, uh, awe, right? It's, a, it's a, uh, a sense by which you know that a part of you has, has now died in that encounter, right? The old part of you, and it, that's why it's so hard the old man, it, he dies hard. He dies hard. But encountering God and, and submitting yourself to the Spirit, that's what it does. It puts a death. <laughs> that's right. He, want, he wants to come up again and again. But the mortification of the flesh comes through the encounters of God. And how do you encounter God most and foremost in this life? Through His Word. Through His Word. That is how He speaks. As, as God spoke audibly to the prophets, he speaks it to us through his word, through the, the person of Jesus Christ. Amen? Yeah. Um, it, we have a holy father, a fearful, awful, aw, not awful and bad, full of awe yes. that we should be. And when I hear men say, holy daddy, or, you know, they, they have yeah. that. It's flipping, They want that yes. commonality. Yeah. yeah. It just, I just cringe. Yes. Because he's not, he's not one of us. He's not. That, that's right. In our level. And that's I don't right. say anything because it's not my my place. But I, I pray for these. Yes. So called men of God that that say that. Right. And it's just, yeah. Right. And again, uh, as as Nadab and Abihu uh, knew, uh, when you treat worship of God flippantly. He doesn't take that lightly. He consumed them in the fire. They were flippant in their worship and and in the way they approached him, and therefore they were consumed. And while God doesn't necessarily send a a fire from heaven uh, to us uh, uh, today, that that same principle applies. And as the writer of Hebrews says, we have approached that holy mountain Zion, just like the children of Israel who weren't allowed to touch the mountain at Mount Sinai. 
They were not allowed. They had to be cleansed before they could even approach the mountain and still could not touch it. That is the kind of awe and reverence we need to be showing our Heavenly Father.